Good morning. Morning. As usual, I want to begin with prayer for not only for our Sunday morning here and our fellowship and our learning of the Word, but we want to pray for the saints around the world. I, I have an email I want to read a little bit later from one. And my, I, just every week these emails just cause my heart to go out to people around the world who don't have fellowship, they don't know where to go, they've become unwanted by their churches. And so uh, they listen, you know, we put our stuff on the Internet so they, have, they can hear the Word of God, but I want to pray that they find fellowship. I really care about these people. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, uh, the fact that we do have fellowship and that we have people around us who come, who love you, who have hearts that are uh, longing for the truth of the word and who pray for one another and reach out to one another and fellowship with one another. And that we don't want to take that for granted. What a wonderful blessing. And Lord, we thank you for that. But we pray for those who don't have that for one reason or another. They, the churches that they've attended have gone apostate or some movement came in and took the Word of God out of the pulpit and the church fills up with the unconverted and the, uh, who have no concern about the things of the truth of the Scripture. Whoever those people are that are so longing for fellowship, we pray for them that you'd help them find their remnant and be able to gather together. And we pray that this morning we would... Um, Learn and be sanctified by the means of grace that you provide for us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. We have a field report. <laughs> Some of our members went over to hear a Christian mystic speak. I know it's an oxymoron, but that's how they... But that's how they are, I guess. But that's going to be our conference next weekend, okay? We're going to have a conference on Saturday in which we're going to address the issue of people coming up with various ways that they believe they're going to hear God, okay? God is going to speak this way, that way, through this person, that person. And I'm going to contend that God only speaks authoritatively and certainly through the scriptures. All right. But Keith and some others went and did some research about a fellow who was speaking in town here, and his name is Mark Berkler. And the, really, the real irony of this is 25 years ago, 20 years ago, I debated him. Uh, Jay Howard and I met this Mark Berkler and a pastor in a restaurant, and we had a debate. And uh, about this mysticism and this idea, the ideas he was teaching. And I mean, that was 20 years ago, in 1986 or whatever it was. And now here we are, same issue. So Keith was there, and uh, he wrote up a document uh, debating what this uh, person was teaching. And so, Keith, go ahead and give your little report. So the goal of the... What we were trying to do wasn't so much as convince people that were attending the conference that this was wrong. The equivalent would be going to the Hajj. Go to Mecca during the Hajj. 
and uh, try to hand out Christian tracts to everybody going to the Hajj. Most people wouldn't listen to you. That's probably not where they're most receptive. But we decided to do it primarily because one of my friends is a member of the board of North Heights. And it wasn't a North Heights event. It was a Lutheran renewal event that happened to be in their building. And we were hoping to really provoke this issue and bring it up within the, the leadership of North Heights so that they would say this is good or this is bad and force the issue there. So we got there and we started handing out uh, uh, brochures. And it wasn't too long before the leadership of Lutheran Renewal said, you can't do this. And I said, you don't own the building. So it took them some time to uh, go through uh, proper channels to see who owned the building and who was going to do what, where. And uh, during that time, we handed out quite a few brochures. Uh, uh, ben and Jeremy were outside handing them while they were working with us, and they were very, very angry. I mean, one of the uh, leader's wife ripped the brochure from uh, Diane Bukowski's hand and tore it up in little pieces. So it was, it was kind of it was just interesting watching. And then when they had the proper authorities saying we can't do it inside, we went out to uh, Highway 96, which is uh, where the guy said we could go, and we started handing them out there to every car that came in. It was kind of ironic was while I was sitting there, the car drove up as my father, and I handed him one. I said, hi, Dad. <laughs> and uh, in the net result was we got uh, probably 100, 150, 200 brochures out. But the, the, while I was inside talking, the leader of the Lutheran Renewal came up and said, this isn't how you do it. You should be meeting with somebody. He said, okay, let's meet. Are you free this week? He says, well, uh, yes, so. How about Wednesday? Okay. So, and he said, you can invite anyone you want. So I said, that's wonderful. And I went back and then sent him an email inviting him to the meeting, confirming it, and then sent the same email with a much fuller description to Bob Cottingham, the senior pastor at North Heights, and all the board and all the other pastoral staff so we could all meet together on Wednesday and decide who is true. Is Mark Berkler's view of God true and how he speaks? Or is how I understand the Reformation's view of God, Sola Scriptura, true? Is that how he speaks? I mean, we could both be wrong, but both of us aren't right. It's mutually exclusive. They cannot both be right. So that's kind of where that uh, stood. And then the following day, Jim Bukowski and Diane Bukowski and I went back in. I mean, it costs $40 to go to the conference. I'll put a plug in for our conference next week. If you come, you get in free. <laughs> Here it was $40, and he got a little green wristband that was policed fairly strictly at the door. So we came in. I didn't want to waste my $40. I could go see Heresy if I paid good money for it. So uh, it was more concerning than you can think. The first morning session, there was a prophet, or I say a false prophet, but he called himself a prophet called Jim Gall. And uh, he prophesied to a woman in the audience that her children and her grandchildren's names would be written in the book of life. And people may have problems here with the doctrine of election, but most of those people are Arminians. And when you see them accepting that with joy and amens, when they won't accept the, the doctrines of grace that are in the scriptures, it's really, really disturbing. And what was maybe more concerning is he was talking about, he talk, uh, wants to bring this prayer movement back into the, into the church and thinks it's the most important thing that God is doing. And he said, Luther discovered a truth that God illuminated in Romans 5, that just to live by faith. 
And the Moravians discovered a truth 100 years later in Leviticus 6, where it says the, alt, the fire on the altar of incense will never go out. It should never go out. So based on that, they set up a 24 by 7, 365 day prayer chain because it's our job to pray 24 hours a day so God's will can be done. And he equated that as the same, on the same par with Luther, and it's, it's the same kind of truth. It was just bizarre because obviously Christ is now our intercessor in heaven making intercession for us continually. So there is a, an altar in heaven, and the prayers of Jesus are going up continually, and we are saved. But it's not some little Moravians having a little meeting thinking they're doing God's will. It's just illusion. And finally, in the afternoon, this guy Berkler gets up, and his thesis is that our spontaneous thoughts that come to us are certainly God's voice to us, and that's how he speaks. And if you submit those to three spiritual advisors... And don't ask what they think about them, but have them read them and what, ask them if they feel it's God or not. Because reason is evil. If they feel it's God, then it's certainly God speaking to you. And he went on to say that uh, this is how God has moved in the world. Einstein got his theory of relativity because he was following Berkler's methods and made the claim that we can be as brilliant as Einstein and change the world around us if we just do this uh, listening to God freestyle, and he said that God is moving him into new areas to have this work. In the last year, he spent doing it on the stock market. And it was, it was just a, a, a astounding, and everybody was there saying Amen and glory to God. And you would wonder why. The, the most, the worst part about the whole day wasn't what the guy was saying. It was an audience that was all predisposed to raise their hands and say glory, glory to what the claims were. And he went on to say that everything that happens in the, in the occult world has a Christian counterpart, because that's just counterfeit. So oh, while, yeah. the, while the occult world gets into altered states of consciousness using a mantra, we use tongues. To get into altered states. And, and it, it, was, it was so disturbing. I, I had to leave after the first session because the, uh, I, have, I have a limitation in my language. I don't know how to express the, the feelings, but... It would be as if you went to a hospital, and you're in the nursery, and you have the glass panel with all the, the babies in the little tubs, and a nurse would grab a baby and put it on the counter and whack it with a, with a cleaver. That's what you felt like you were watching in this whole exercise in front of you. And it was so disturbing, uh, I just had to leave. And I can't, there's no words to describe how bad it was, because every claim went worse and worse, and everybody was saying amen. In fact, my father was in the second row. And I think that I would really appreciate the prayers of the people here because there's a big meeting, God willing, this Wednesday where Lutheran Renewal as an organization that's funded by North Heights or partially funded by North Heights, this is coming under review. And I think it would be so good to have this thing cut off because it's a source of very, very damaging teaching. Okay. That's my report. All right. Yeah, it's just utter spiritual wickedness is what this kind of stuff is. I um, okay, yeah. Keith wrote up a rebuttal to this. The we're going to have a seminar on Saturday, and I one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to redo a lecture I did four years ago on this topic because we lost the video. We don't have any video of that, and it was one of the key lectures I've done that refutes this. Christian divination. 
So I still have my PowerPoint, but I couldn't remember what all I said, so I'm listening to myself in my truck. I think it's getting bad when you're driving around listening to yourself. (laughs) But it was the easiest way to remember what I said four years ago. And I was talking about this very thing that Keith is talking about, about these Christian techniques to enter altered states of consciousness. And I was talking about the alpha level, the theta level, and the, the reason for these techniques that are being taught is that when you're in a normal state of consciousness, you're not hearing voices. If you're, I mean, most people are. There are, there are people that have uh, problems, okay, that are disorders that hear voices. But the fact is that when we're in a normal awake consciousness, we aren't getting revelations out of the spirit realm. Now, the, the basic uh, faulty worldview that's behind this whole thing is the idea that if I'm a Christian and I'm in a church building in, uh, or doing something under the auspices of Christianity, that therefore, if I go into this alpha level or right brain hemisphere and get into an altered state of consciousness so that I hear voices from the spirit world, that that voice is going to be God. Okay? Hey, you're right, Cheryl. It is hogwash. But the fact is that it's incredibly naive uh, to believe that. So Saturday, so I hope some of you can come, and uh, so we'll have an audience here. We did send out invitations, and I'm going to, and pray for me, for my voice. I've got six hours of lectures to do over the weekend. Four on Saturday, two on Sunday. And... I'm trusting my voice will be able to do that. Okay, let's get a verse studied. We didn't get one done last week, so we're getting behind here. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Then I have something. I want to save a little time to read an email from a a person from uh, Southeast Asia just to show you that the problems that we experience here in America are everywhere. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, as we've been studying this section, this is the last verse in 2 Corinthians 5, but as we've been studying this, we've seen over and over again that Paul uses various terms to teach the same idea. And the idea that he's teaching is substitution. Remember? Substitution. And this is reiterated here in this passage. I think I've said several times that it's amazing that in this day and age, the idea of the substitutionary atonement is under attack, and most particularly by the emerging church. And I finished writing an article yesterday about Velvet Elvis. And again, there's this whole... The idea of the atonement as it's understood in the emerging church is not based on traditional Christian theology of the substitutionary atonement. But how do you escape it? Well, you escape it by not being systematic in your theology. In other words, if you're systematic, that means that if you're going to teach a doctrine, it's expected that you survey all of the relevant biblical material and, and because Christians for, for centuries have believed that the Bible is inspired by God and that it's not contradictory. 
okay, that the Bible has a consistent message from Genesis to Revelation. And so, therefore, if I want to understand atonement, I should know, if I'm going to be a theologian, I must know what the Bible says from Genesis to Revelation about atonement, right? Now, is this substitutionary atonement something imported into the text, or is it something found in the text? Well, we see it from Genesis to Revelation. Let me give you an example. Where is it in Genesis? Well, Genesis 22. Remember, Isaac is going to be sacrificed, but God provided a substitute. Where do we see it in Revelation? We see the blood atonement extolled in in songs that are sung in heaven, and it's how they overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb. So we have substitution in Revelation. And we have substitution here in many different passages. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says who... Which, let's just survey some of those. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Who pair, in that kind of context, means on behalf of. And then again, verse 15. He died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Isn't that substitution? Christ died We deserve to die. The wrath of God was directed against our sin. We deserve nothing more than hell. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die on the behalf of anyone who puts faith in him. Do you believe that? Okay. Now, how can you escape it? I've read, I don't know how many books, I've read book after book after book that are expressing postmodern theology. Because I'm writing a book on the topic. And none of them is willing to affirm substitutionary atonement. Not a single one. Because it doesn't fit with their postmodern sensibilities. One of the guys in England said that this is, if, if Christ was sacrificed for our sins, that's cosmic child abuse. And that quote has been bantered around. Somebody else in that movement says, that the doctrine that there is a hell is bad advertising for God. Well, you're right, it is. But the thing that's, this, and then this Velvet Elvis, again, a repainting the Christian life. But uh, you don't find substitutionary atonement clearly taught. He has some terms, but it's of no interest to him. Rob Bell's idea is that everybody's already reconciled to God. Everybody. It's just that some people don't know it. And the way you know it is you begin to believe in yourself. God believes in you, so you need to believe in yourself. So I have a section of this article I finished yesterday that says the, the ultimate role reversal. Man is the object of God's faith. Now, isn't that a role reversal? Why? Well, I, I don't believe in me, and I'm quite sure God doesn't. <laughs> All right. <laughs> But I do believe in God. Okay, Keith. <laughs> I think the reason that they don't believe in substitutionary atonement is because that, that would mean that God has wrath that's going to be poured against sin, and Christ bore that wrath. So that if you have substitutionary atonement, the wrath has to be there, and that's not a part of their theology. Exactly. Their, their theology. In fact, it's very important. I noticed the notes as I was reading. I read Velvet Elvis on a plane. I read Dick first, and that was much better. <laughs> then I went to Velvet Elvis. Uh, 
But I, I, so I was just writing notes in the margin and then pulled over some of the pages where I know I want to go quote it later. And one of the notes I was writing is that this isn't the universal call. This isn't the universal call. This isn't the universal call. The, the, it just isn't there. It's no, the, his idea of the universal call is God believes in you, so you need to believe in yourself. All right? That is not, where do you read that in the book of Acts? We have all these sermons. Did anybody, did Peter get up and say, you're already all reconciled to God, now just believe in yourself? He never preached that. So if we're not willing to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, and we're not willing to warn people about the wrath to come, remember John the Baptist, what did he say when the Pharisees are coming out? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? So if we're going to remove that from our theology, okay, you don't have the Christianity of the New Testament. Yes, Tim. You're talking about an article that's going to be in Worldview Weekend? That right. one's already there. Okay. And it's also a CIC. Okay, but my, it is a CIC article? I, I haven't given it to you yet because I, I didn't think it was fair until I went through it one more time. Okay. If it'll be the same article, fine, then everybody will get it. But if it isn't, some of those Worldview Weekend articles are really quite excellent. How do the rest of the folks that don't have a computer get it? If you don't have a computer, you're out of luck. <laughs> Ask somebody that does to print it off for you or tell me I can probably print you a copy. If you go right now to TwinCityFellowship.com, links, Christian Worldview Network, we have a link to my articles. There's one on there called, what is it, Rob Bell's Abstract Elvis or something like that. I'm claiming that, see, he said his analogy is that uh, he has a, a, a art in his garage, this, this vel, uh, a Velvet Elvis. You know how these people along the side of the road sell Velvet art? So he has this Velvet Elvis, and he claims that it would be absurd that that's the only picture of Elvis that would ever be painted. And so he said it's just as absurd to believe some picture of Christianity. You have to keep repainting, 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 because it's changing. And so what I did with my article for Christian Worldview Network was I said that basically his Elvis is made out of abstract art. And what abstract art is is just a collage of images that don't actually make any. And so I, I, sh- and I proved that by quoting his book. And then in my conclusion, I said, if you have an abstract Elvis, the, the problem is there was a real Elvis, and we know what he looks like. And so we can tell whether that velvet looks like Elvis or not. But he's assuming we don't have a real original because he said Christianity is mysterious, paradoxical, and uh, changing and morphing. This is his word. It's morphing. And so you don't have original. And if you don't have an original, you can't take a current theology and compare it to the original to see if it's a decent painting or not. Do you see the point? So he has an abstract Elvis. And so in the end, I say it just as well be Marilyn Monroe because you can't tell the difference. (laughs) Okay, they make velvet Marilyn Monroe's too, but if you have it in the abstract, you can't tell the difference. Now, dear ones, I'm saying all that to say this. We're in a section here that teaches substitution over and over again. And the only way to avoid that is to refuse to be systematic in your theology. And every postmodern writer that I've Surveyed, and I've read, I've read, I got piles of them just come to my office. You can see 
It's not just a mess. There's a reason for those books, right, right Carl? <laughs> i got piles of these books I've read, and every one of them takes pot shots at systematic theology. Why? Because if it's not systematic, then you just ignore this. You don't, you don't have to give an answer. If, if you're just going to paint your picture of Christianity however you want, somebody says, well, this says right here, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. On our behalf. So how can you say there's no substitution? Well, you just have to ignore it. You just let, don't let anybody in your church know that First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 even exists. They're not going to look it up. All right, so substitution over and over and over again in the Bible. And why would you want to deny that? It's, the, it's good news. It's good news. He died for our sins. That's the good news. And there's a universal call of the gospel, isn't that God loves you? I believe in God's universal love, but that's not the universal call. Um, you wrote that. And Keith wrote an article for Worldview on that, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote the destructive claim, God loves you. It's a destructive claim. Because if anybody can say God loves you, the Dalai Lama kin, the Mormons kin, the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, knock, knock, God loves you, and you go away with a warm, fuzzy feeling to hell. And the, the concept is, every single time in the New Testament where it says God loves you, and this is love, not that we loved him, but he loved us and gave himself up for us. Substitution. For God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's always, Substitution. There's, yes. always a, a, there's always a qualifier. And an unqualified God loves you would mean that God loves sinners continuing to sin. And if that can, that's not what he loves. He loves his enemies and offered them a substitution so that if they become and believe in this substitution, they aren't his enemies anymore. Amen. But when he comes at the end with his sword, he kills all his enemies. That's true. Read so the book just, of just going up to somebody and saying God loves you is not a Christian statement. Really, it's a pagan statement. Wow. Well, it's interesting. Do a survey of the book of Acts of all of the sermons in the book of Acts sometime. Very, very interesting survey. I was required to do that in North Central Bible College back in 1973. Dr. Phillips made, a, made a, an assignment for us when I was studying theology that we would study every sermon in the book of Acts and then make kind of an outline of what the issues and topics were and then compare them and see if there's anything in common. And so that was a, that was a good assignment. I remember doing that. And you know what I came back with? The one thing they all had in common was they preached the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection. Every single sermon in Acts preaches the resurrection. And the other themes that you see consistently, not universally, the, res- the only one thing I found universally was the person and work of Christ. Okay? So, was that? Yes, that was Dr. John Phillips. He was one of my professors, too. Well, you're blessed. He was wonderful. He is wonderful professor. Thank God for him. I, I, he's with the Lord now. But uh, anyhow, the person and work of Christ and the resurrection. The sermons in Acts weren't about you other than your need to repent. Repentance is a very consistent theme, although it wasn't, in every, it wasn't mentioned in every sermon. But it, it was mentioned in Peter's. It was mentioned in Paul. 
in, uh, in Acts 17, Acts 2, Acts 26, all talk about repentance. And if you look at Luke Acts, it begins with John the Baptist. That's, that's an amazing thing. See, back then I didn't know to study Luke Acts as a two-volume work. I was just studying Acts and then some other time studying Luke. Now, be, well, and the, and the theologians were talking so much about that then. Now, there's a great breakthrough in study of Luke. Is, is the people like this Robert Tannehill, the narrative unity of Luke Acts, is study them as a two-volume work. Then you see the themes all the way across the spectrum, and it really comes alive. And so I was looking at the theme of repentance in Luke Acts a, a few months ago. I probably mentioned this to you. And the thing that I noticed is it bookends the preaching in Acts and Luke. At the very beginning of Luke, I think in chapter 3, is the first time we hear preaching, John the Baptist it says, repent and bring forth uh, uh, fruit that shows you've repented. I'm paraphrasing it, right? That's exactly what he said in Luke, or not exactly, but look it up. That's what Jesus said that in Mark 1. But in Luke, the first one to preach repentance was uh, John the Baptist. And then the next one to re-preach it was Jesus. And then... And then we go into Acts, and Peter preached it, and then it was preached several times after that, and it was preached by Paul. And then at the very end, not just not quite at the end, but as close to the end as what John the Baptist was at the beginning, you have Paul saying almost word for word what John the Baptist preached. He says to before Agrippa, I'm preaching to the Gentiles and telling them to repent and bring forth fruits showing that they repented. So you have John the Baptist in Luke 3 and Paul in, Luke, in Acts 26, bookending Luke-Acts, preaching repentance. Now, why? Well, let's go to the middle. One end, repentance. The other end, repentance. Let's go to the middle. Luke 24, right to transition from Luke to Acts. The Great Commission, that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. So you cannot escape it unless you're not systematic. You see what my point I'm making? You can't just pick and choose little verses here and there to, to support a theology that it couldn't be supported if you took the whole counsel of God. Yes. Yeah, it's in Acts 26, 20, uh, talking about Paul, uh, that throughout the declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout the whole region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. There it is. And so he said that was his comprehensive message as a summary of what Paul had been preaching. All right? So uh, I am going to, I don't care if postmodern people don't like systematic theology. I'm going to keep teaching systematically. You know, you don't have to give people what you want. You have to give them what they need. (laughs) Okay. He made him who knew no sin. Now, when I preach the gospel, don't, and when Ryan preaches the gospel, we always say Jesus lived a sinless life. Why? Because people don't know that unless you preach it to them. The average person who's in the culture out here who heard the name Jesus, they just think it's a guy who started a religion. All right? And if you don't preach that he lived a sinless life, 
then you don't understand the idea of substitution. Because you have to have a pure, unblemished sacrifice. They even did it in the Old Testament, didn't they? Okay, in type. The, the lamb that was a type of Christ in the Old Testament had to be unblemished. Remember that? And so, therefore, he knew no sin. That's why it says it. The key doctrine, the sinlessness of Christ in his incarnation. To be sin on our behalf. In other words, not that he actually became a literal sinner, but he was treated as a sinner by God who poured out his wrath on Christ. He was treated as a sinner as he bore our sins. Because he was sinless. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now this is called in theology forensic justification. Paul likes to use this term reckoning. Forensic justification is found also in Romans. And what does that mean? That this is a legal transaction <clears throat> Excuse me. That God, who is the judge of the universe, God is holy and righteous as the judge, accepts Christ's death and imputes his righteousness into our account. That's forensic justification or legal justification. So in the books of heaven, we are legally in uh, the column of Christ's righteousness. Is that good news? Absolutely. The only thing, the requirement is that we repent and believe the gospel. And that simply means turn from living for self, sin, the world. It says, we just read that earlier, remember? It says here, he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. The implication is that every sinner is living for Himself. That's, it has different, you know, there's different ways to do that. You can live for self by being a humanitarian like Mother Teresa. Or you can live for self by being a cruel, torturous murderer like Adolf Hitler. Or you can live for self by doing good works. Or you can live by, for self by living for pleasure and debauchery. You can live for self by just trying to accumulate money. You can live for self by trying to be, have power over other people. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. But all lived for self. Whatever it, whatever it looked like, we were living for selves. But he died for all that those who live should no longer. So repentance is turning from living for self. It's turning from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Here we have substitution. And this is taught, and Paul, why does he keep going back to it? Because it's the center doctrine of the gospel that we believe. Forensic legal justification. This is what the uh, Reformation was all about. This is what Luther taught. This is what is anathematized in the Council of Trent. Okay? The anathemas of Trent say that if you believe this, may you go to hell. That's what the Catholic Church says to you. Yeah. They say, if you believe that a man is justified by faith alone, then anathema. May you go to hell for believing that. 
That's what it says. Go read Trent. I, I, study it for yourself. Now, now everybody wants to have this ecumenical thing. Well, how can you, how can you uh, have peace between somebody telling you that you have to go to hell if you believe the gospel? You can't have peace with that. You can't uh, reconcile that with biblical Christianity. So we must continue to preach it. No, don't worry about it. So uh, the, the emergent church doesn't like it because it's bad advertising for God. And the Catholic church doesn't like it because they don't like Luther telling them they're, they're wrong. And they wanted to believe in works. So this is the gospel. And this is central. Let me now give an illustration of how, how this gospel truth is being battled in church history. This is from a, a fellow with an Asian name from Southeast Asia who's studying in seminary. He's e- emailed me off and on. I think I'll read the one with his questions and then I'll read my responses to them. Um, and, and I want to do this because it's very important until we know what the issues are today in our own churches. So much for Rome. What about the evangelical church? Here's what it says. From a guy, his first name is Chun. Dear Pastor Bob, long time no talk. It seems that I had stopped to bombard you with questions. In fact, I have many questions and struggles in heart that need to be dealt with. At, at this end of this, at the, well, he has, his English is not too, not too bad. At the end of this month, I'm asked to preach an evangelistic, evangelical message within 15 minutes in my preaching class. My question is, if it is possible to preach the full message of the gospel within this short time period. If so, can you suggest me some entry points that I can start with? Well, here, now here's my answer. Me. I use the following points when I preach the gospel. One, who is Jesus? Then parenthetically, include his pre-existence, virgin birth, sinless life, deity, and humanity. Two, what did he do? Include miracles that no one else could do, predicting his own resurrection from the dead, his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. Three, why do we need him? Here you preach the law, the wrath of God against sin, the need for the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, and the need to escape going to hell. Four. <laughs> Four. It's four point. And you, get, you know, you hear it every Sunday, do you not? What does he expect of us? That's the fourth point. Okay, here's who Jesus is, what he did, and why you need him. But what's he expect? Hopefully, as you preach this, somebody's convicted like they were on the day of Pentecost. And when they were convicted, they said, what shall we do? Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. So I think you can do that in 15 minutes. And then, so then I said, it sounds like a lot, but it can be done in less than 10 minutes, depending on how much you elaborate various points. I do it every Sunday. Now back to Sean. Here's what he says. In my preaching class... I am so upset about what my professor said about evangelical preaching. He does, not, he does not only say that in such a meeting, preachers do not necessarily preach the full message of the gospel, but also said that preaching turned from sin is dangerous. This is what he's being taught in Southeast Asia in, in seminary. The, the, preacher class teach, the teacher of the preaching class says preaching turned from sin is dangerous. No, not preaching it is dangerous. Now, back to his, his email. Here's what he says. While he stresses on preaching repentance, but his definition of repentance is far from what I learned from the Bible, 
and some Reformed Bible teachers. Here's how he defines repentance. Quote, true repentance is not sorry for sin, not even turning from sin, which is the fruit of repentance. True repentance is change of mind, only change of mind. A change of belief, not change of behavior. The object of repentance is God. The audience should be awakened to change his concept about God and about sin and about himself. Now, that's what Rob Bell was teaching. You need to change your thinking about God and yourself, and the way you change it is believe that God believes in you. But we don't preach about sin or turning from sin. Now, by the way, just theologically, so you know this, when we preach to the sinner, like John the Baptist did, and like Peter did, and like Paul did, that they ought to turn from sin, we're not thinking that they can do that by human effort. But the preaching of repentance is what God uses to convict people for the fact that they need God. All right? It's part of what God uses to convict. So that's why it's included in the message. But some people do repent because the Holy Spirit drives his convicting presence into their, deep into their hearts, and they believe. Okay, okay. Now back to, that's what he said. Repentance is just changing your mind. Now, my answer. There's a good entry in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament under metanoeo that explains the meaning of repentance in the New Testament. The idea is much like conversion and involves the whole person, not just the mind. Now back to his email. He even told me that an evangelical preaching, preaching turn from sin is not important compared to turn to God. Is that true? My answer. You cannot have one without the other. If we do not turn from our old sinful ways, we're not turning to God either. Both are necessary. Turn from, turn to. You can't take part of that away. Back to email. He also asks us to preach with human needs first. Bob, is this right? For example, hurts, emotional problems, stress, dating, money, sex, and so forth. Preach to that first, human needs. This is what they're teaching in seminary Southeast Asia. Here's my answer. That is false. Just study the book of Acts. Did any of the apostles ever preach on these topics? No. Did you see Peter's sermon on dating? It was great. (laughs) No, it's not in there. All right. Back to his email. He also mentions that Jesus, quote, Jesus regards me extremely valuable and important, unquote. Is this statement biblical? His biblical support is from Luke 19, uh, explained that since Jesus is willing to eat with Zacchaeus, it makes a friend of him. He sees Zacchaeus extremely valuable and important. Unquote. That, well, that's, again, Rob Bell says the same thing. Here's my response. That is a man-centered, and it's not the gospel. It's not about how important we are. It's how sinful we are and why we need a Savior. We don't need to feel important. We already feel important. Every toddler feels important. Yeah, that's a big problem. Nobody else sees how important I am. <laughs> they, just don't, they don't see it. <laughs> and then back to the email. Again, Southeast Asia. In short, I'm really frustrated with this preaching class. By the way, he's a purpose-driven church pastor. Oh, now we know. Now we know where this is coming from. Then he asked, will you attend a conference together for the gospel 2008? I think that's that thing MacArthur does. Is that it? Together for the gospel? That, um, I'm not sure. Well, anyhow, now did, but do you see what I mean? That this stuff in America is being exported all around the world and taking the gospel out of churches in other countries. All right? 
felt needs and change the terms of the gospel and make it more humanistic, make, make people feel important, and so on and so forth. All right, back to our text. He made him to know, who knew no sin to be sin on our, ha- our behalf so we might become the righteousness of God in him because we are in Christ. God does not count trespasses against us, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Let's look up some cross-references. Um, Galatians 3.13, Dick, Joe, 1 Peter 2.22-24, 2, Robert, 1 John 3.5, and I, I don't know your name. Nancy? Okay, Nancy. Isaiah 50, oh, you get the good one. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 4-6, 1 Peter 3.18, and Diane, Hebrews 7.26, and Noel, Romans 5.19. Okay, Dick has Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now what is that? Substitution. Having become a curse for us. How can you miss it? Well, you can't. And so how can you get rid of the substitutionary atonement? Here's another way to get rid of it if you're postmodern. Written languages just don't work. You can't know, like Eric's seminar. Can't know, you can't know. The little engine that couldn't. We can't know what they meant. And it's too hard and we can't know. Well, then if you can't know, I guess you can't find the substitutionary atonement in the Bible. I think what's, what's at core, and even when you're talking about the letter from Asia, is who speaks for God and where is God's voice. That's a common theme because if I can attack God's voice and has God really said then the promises of salvation and his method of salvation and his purposes and means of grace are all muddied because I don't know what God said anymore. Absolutely. And is it any surprise, what was the first attack against humans in their relationship to God? Say it. Has God really said it? <laughs> yep. Has God said the first words from Satan to man? And I think it's going to be the last words, too. Uh, when you're talking about Rob Bell, it reminds me, or when I was reading or listening to him, um, he, before he led a group of students in a breathing exercise to get whatever into an altered state of mind, he said that our breath is divine, so we all have divinity in us. And that also reminds me of one of the first slides, that we are like God. Yeah. So, so you just jump from the... From where you are to, you don't need the substitutionary atonement. Right. Because you've got God. You've already got divinity, you just don't know it. And he also says in his book, heaven is coming to earth and hell is coming to earth, depending on what you do. All right. You you read it too, right, Ben? Is that by accurate about what it says? All right. Um, 1 Peter 2, 22 to 24. Thank you. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but keeping and trusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Amen. For he bore what on, our cro- on the cross? Our sins. What is that? Substitution. I think it might be a couple places in the Bible. How do you miss it? 
You miss it because you don't want to hear it. You've got your hands over your ears. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. I don't want to hear about substitution. All right. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. First no, First John, John 3, 5. 5. I, I'm confused, Robert. <laughs> Don't listen to me. Go ahead. Right. I'm praying for you, so it's okay. <laughs> and you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So the sinlessness of Christ taught in the Bible. So it's worth preaching. Now Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. I love this one. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows yet we considered him stricken by God smitten by him and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities the judge the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed what's that you got it right Cheryl substitution so now we found it in Isaiah Now we have 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. What's that? More substitution. How can you miss this? Okay, Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Amen. Undefiled, separated from sinners. The uniqueness of Christ. Romans 5.19. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. More substitution. Do we have that again? Do you think that we... All right. You can't miss it. And we need... We just did systematic theology right here today. All right? Here's what we did. How do you do systematic theology? What does the Bible teach about justification and the atonement? And we went here, we went to Genesis, went to Isaiah, went to Peter, went to all these passages. They're all agreeing with one another. Once you have that laid out, then you know what the doctrine is. And you teach that as a doctrine. Okay? It isn't just some, uh, what does Brian McLaren call it, a shrink-wrapped, freeze-dried. Uh, we, don't, we don't want any stodgy old shrink-wrapped, freeze-dried doctrine. We want something new. But what about, what about all these statements in the Bible that say once for all? What does that mean? Can we understand that? Once for all. The faith was once for all delivered to the saints. What does that mean? Does it mean it's going to be morphing? Or does it mean it's constant? Absolutely. So... Uh, here, I have a citation from a scholar. This was uh, Garland. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of wrath. He was treated as a sinner in his death. The next question is whether Paul sees this death as representative or substitutionary. Representative would be 
for our benefit, substitutionary would be in our place. Then he quotes somebody who argues for the representative position. But then he goes on, Garland doesn't agree with him, but there is widespread evidence for the use of the preposition cuper, remember we talked about that, in a substitutionary sense to mean instead of or in the place of. And you know, there are still other theories of the atonement being taught. The word of faith heresy embraces the ransom theory of the atonement. Remember how I taught those here in Sunday school? I went through the different theories of the atonement. There's a moral government theory that's still being taught by some people that comes from Finney and a few other uh, 19th century uh, people, or even 18th century somebody taught that. But this isn't hard. It's over and over in the Bible that substitution is the right doctrine. He died for us on our behalf and in our place. It does, you know, in our place in, it also has with it the concept that we're the beneficiaries. Now, we've got a new chapter here. Yeah, if you want to have something else, maybe we'll just yeah, I would, Again, in, in all that we've been discussing here, the way that we know it's substitutionary instead of ransom, instead of uh, moral government theory, is that God has spoken, and we can look and see what God has said. Right. And because of that, we have certainty that this is true, and therefore our sins are forgiven, and therefore we have hope that is solid and firm. Now, I've just, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time on this. I would just like to read this letter that I wrote to as Pastor Cottingham, and really ask us all to pray, because I think there's a potential here. There's thousands of people that go to this church. It's much larger than ours. And it would be a, such a win to see the gospel spoken and the word of God come back into a central place there. Okay. What's I your... said, Dear Pastor Cottingham, I spoke today with Paul Anderson, the director of Lutheran Renewal at North Heights Arden Hills Campus. Paul would like to get together with me and discuss the recent article that I wrote concerning the teachings of Mark Verkler. Paul is a very kind and remarkable man. I have great respect for him. We have tentatively scheduled this coming Wednesday evening. He asked me to invite whomever I wished, and I would like to invite the entire board of directors of North Heights as well as the pastoral staff. I would place my article itself as the agenda, and I've included a soft copy for your convenience. The goal of this meeting would be to present to you two paradigms of authority. One, Berkler's claims that God certainly speaks to us through spontaneous thoughts that are guaranteed to be his voice. Or two, Sola Scriptura is proposed by Luther and the Reformers as understood and articulated in my paper. These two positions can be compared to your statement of faith. So this is their statement of faith. We believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God and the infallible authority in all matters of proclamation, faith, and life. We believe that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And we accept the ecumenical creeds, the apostolic, the Nicene, and the Athanasian as true declarations of faith. And we accept the unaltered Augsburg Confession, Luther's small catechism, as true witnesses to the gospel. What is at stake is the voice of God, the word of God. This is the core of the entire scriptures. It is why the promise of eternal life is valid and to be trusted. If the scriptures are not truly sufficient for us, then the Bible is a lie and so is our faith. We are to be pitied for our delusion. People who falsely claimed to speak for God in the Old Testament were stoned because they damaged the people of God. You have an amazing position God has given to you to care for the flock that he died for and to teach him his words. Eternity is at stake for those in your congregation and those who hear the word of God spoken from your pulpit. 
I'm sure that the responsibility rests heavily upon you. I also believe that those who teach falsehood still damage his people, even if they're kind, nice people, with exemplary piety. I would love to discuss this, art, this issue in my article with Paul Anderson before the board and pastoral staff, and I would invite you all to weigh the words that are spoken and make a decision for the sake of those God has entrusted in your care. Either this teaching is a wolf, or I am, or both of us are, but they cannot be and should not be allowed to coexist and both be tolerated by those who are commanded to care for the people that Jesus died for. Your brother in Christ, Keith Gentile. Amen. Lord, may that happen. May may your truth be proclaimed. Um, That's what's at issue. The article I wrote yesterday, yesterday, I finished yesterday, quote Rob Bell, denying sola scriptura. He says that's not a correct doctrine. His doctrine is this. God is speaking always through the Holy Spirit to us. So you can't say sola scriptura. And the Bible doesn't speak. It has to be interpreted. All of this is a fancy way of saying the reader determines the meaning of the Bible. Okay? That's the whole issue. Do the biblical writers determine the meaning, in which case it will never change? It's always going to be the same meaning. There may be more applications as church history goes on, but there's no new meaning. Or do the readers determine the meaning? Right? Now, what kind of a book does the reader determine the meaning? Well, none that it's going to do any good. How would, how would, what if you're on a mechanic and, and you, or, or you're, oh, here's Steve, electrical engineer. What if you have a schematic diagram, but it only means something to you? Whoever made the diagram just didn't make the meaning. Could you ever repair anything? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Couldn't possibly work. Yes. What do they think then that the Lord came to earth for? Uh, to teach us to be better people so that heaven will come to earth. That's what he te- says. It's basically, I don't know, do you know what the... sin. No, no, well, yeah, they talk about sin, but they have different definition. Basically, sin, sin is not believing in yourself the way you should, or doing actions that would bring hell to earth. So you can either bring heaven to earth or hell to earth. Is that right? Is that what he says? Here, Ben, ben read the book. Christ came to save us from the wrath to come. It's on earth right now. Yeah. So stop talking about the future. Stop talking about a future judgment. Judgment will be taking place on earth now. Yeah. So, and denying yourself is doing good deeds for other people. Right. You know, living for this world, not for Christ. That's, yeah. That's his major statement. Yeah, exactly. Anyhow, I'll have an article published here by the end of February that will take issue with the thesis of Velvet Alpha. Then that's what happened in the pageant debate. He said... Uh, Judgments, things that happen now, bad consequences. Okay, this morning I'm going to be speaking about their, the Israelites are finally going to get through that Red Sea this morning. All right. Last month we left them kind of hanging in the balance there, but they're going to get through. So we'll see you upstairs at 1030. <laughs>